and welcome to Rising. We have just a really terrific show for you today. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. How are you? I'm doing well. It seems like you're in especially good spirits today. I just decided I was like five seconds ago. So. <laughs> I'm glad to see it. This isn't related to Elden Ring or a Mario Brothers Oh movie my god. Or Elden Ring? You dropped an Elden Ring I don't Ring even reference? really know what that is. Uh, I'm a little uh, Tears of the Kingdom, the Zelda game, a little starved right now because I didn't get to play except for like 30 seconds yesterday. But uh, <laughs> but I hope to get back to it soon. Oh, we're all pulling for you, Robbie. A lot of important work I have <laughs> to do there. We're all pulling for you. <laughs> all right, well, back to the news. A House Oversight Committee Chairman, uh, James Comer, said the FBI has not complied with Republicans' subpoena for unclassified documents alleging a criminal scheme involving President Joe Biden and a foreign national. In a statement, Comer said the GOP will take steps to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress, a move which Speaker Kevin McCarthy backed during an appearance on Fox News yesterday. Let's watch. What could you tell us about Christopher Wray cooperating at some point with which something he has to constitutionally do with Comer? Look, we, Comer subpoenaed the document that he's requested. We have jurisdiction over the FBI, which they seem to act like we do not. I personally called uh, Director Ray and told him he needs to send that document. Today is the deadline. So let me not just tell you, let me tell Director Christopher Ray right here, right now. If he misses the deadline today, I am prepared to move contempt charges in Congress against him. Now, according to an internal GOP memo obtained by Politico, Comer's probe into it is focused on payments linked to Romania and China from Biden's time as vice president. Comer alleges criminal payments to the Biden family and also to associates totaling more than $10 million. As you'll remember, multiple whistleblowers have come forward alleging the FBI's investigation into Hunter Biden did not follow proper procedure and that the bureau labeled credible evidence against the president's son as disinformation. Um, I, I, this is so, so frustrating. Does the FBI think it's above the law, it's above the accountability of the American people through their elected representatives in Congress? They don't want to be scrutinized. They don't want to—they think they're above the law. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting how one can justify not turning over unclassified documents that have been subpoenaed uh, by the House. Obviously, as they made the effort to win back the House, Republicans were principally talking about how this was going to be a significant part of their agenda, um, that having subpoena power again was a big part of the accountability that Republicans hope to bring to looking into what has been potentially going on with the Biden family, uh, 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 an issue that they have been talking about, obviously, since the election back in 2020. And so for their efforts to now be thwarted in these ways, potentially by the FBI director, it's a very significant political moment for Kevin McCarthy, especially given the pressure he's under right now negotiating the debt ceiling deal and having these factions existing within the Republican Party, some of whom think that he is not far enough to the right, not far enough uh, 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 adopting the kind of Trump mentality. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there was the group that was going to withhold uh, his nomination for speaker in the first place in January. And now, because of the, the concessions that they got through that process, uh, it's very easy to uh, kick him out, as it were, or at least easier than it would have been otherwise. So he's walking a tightrope here. And I think that this particular issue, and seeming forceful on this particular issue, is important for Kevin McCarthy to keep legitimacy with that part of the Republican Party. Sure. I think it's good politics for him. This is very important to the Republican base. It's, it's important to the kind of members that, as you point out, held up his nomination in order to you know, make sure he was really going to deliver on some key conservative promises. Uh, but also, you know, I think it's good 
policy, frankly, or uh, policy is not the right word. It's good. Uh, it's it's important for the republic sure. to hold government uh, officials to account. These bureaucracies that have just grown beyond any accounting and any control, thinking that they are operating, you know, they can do whatever they want. Um, the distrust in the FBI, and, and this is what is so frustrating to see. Uh, kind of the mainstream, um, you know, many Democrats have become, I, I know this is frustrating to you as well, have become defensive of law enforcement agencies, cable news, uh, MSNBC and CNN and, and other uh, mainstream outlets, you know, rely now on the, the judgment of top law enforcement officials yeah. uh, because these law enforcement officials didn't like Trump very much. And, sure. and it's just, and now it's all deference to them. And, and we can't, like, we can't trust them to police themselves. They don't deserve to be shielded from scrutiny. It, it's all cloak and dagger with them. And, um, and many of the American people, not just on the right, but also on the left, are sick of it. Many on the left have known this for a long time. Libertarians have known Absolutely. this for a long time, and Republicans have just woken up to it. You know, maybe you could cynically say it's because you know they were too mean to, again to exactly one person, Donald Trump. Yeah. And we should have been uh, Republicans should have been more discerning all along. But uh, but now Democrats are not are, are being undiscerning. Yes, it, it is a wild swing from the protests in 2020 over George Floyd's mm. murder to a time when you yeah. have all these Democrats singing the praises of the police of the FBI. FBI, um, trying to sick the FBI on Matt Taibbi, uh, calling for more funding of the Capitol Police, and on and on and on. But I do want to ask you this. The FBI, of course, has offered a response to what's going on here. And what they say is, uh, they said in a statement that, it, that they remain committed to cooperating with lawmakers in good faith, and that any discussion of escalation under these circumstances is unnecessary. The FBI said it offered to give the Oversight Committee access to information responsive to the committee's subpoena in a format and setting that maintains confidentiality and protects important security interests and the integrity of FBI uh, investigations. What do you make of that? I mean, that sounds like they want to redact everything so that, so that they're not actually telling you anything. I mean, it, it could also mean, I'll show you the document in the room, but we don't want mm -hmm. it circulating more broadly, th those kinds of things, which, you know, it, it was described by Kevin McCarthy as unclassified. It's not clear what the justification would be for this layer of confidentiality outside right. I, of the I, I don't. Concerns. I don't trust at all the FBI or other agencies to say that, no, this is national security, or this is secret, or this is classified, nobody should get to see it. What's, this, what's the big secret? Why can't, why can't Americans have access to the information you have? Why can't the people you work for see what these documents are? Unless this is literally like the, lo the, the names and locations of spies we have embedded in other countries, this is information we should have. This is a problem I rail against all the time on this show, the routine overclassification of everything. It's actually created a problem for political figures because they end up with documents that they shouldn't have because they're technically classified. This has ensnared Donald Trump out of his own like embarrassing sure. clumsiness, but also Joe Biden, Mike Pence, and everything else because they classify too much stuff. Well, what, what it's knee-jerk secrecy. So, the Democrats on the Oversight Committee are saying this. Um, they say that the subpoena document, by definition, reveals nothing more than an unverified and an unsubstantiated tip made to Donald Trump's Justice Department, which presumably led to no evidence of criminal wrong wrongdoing. That's from Jamie Raskin, a top Democrat on the Oversight Committee. So there are two things that can happen here. <laughs> then why can't we see it? So, if it's so mundane yeah. and there was nothing worth following up on it and didn't point to anything, then let us see it. So there's an argument that, one, there is a there there, but the FBI is right to say that they don't want to leak it. Mm -hmm. They don't want it out in public because there is an ongoing investigation and it could compromise the investigation in a way that, frankly, would 
not behoove Republicans who are interested in pursuing sure. justice in this way, or it really is kind of nothing, and in which case it is a little curious as to why Democrats wouldn't want it to just go ahead and be revealed, because the way it's being characterized right now by Republicans is like it's quite a bit of something indeed. Right. They can't have it both ways. They can either release it all, just like they've been asked to do by the elected representatives of the people, or get Comer in a room by himself and, and quietly explain that this is very serious and we're looking into it and we can't like have it, the, it totally in the public right now, but that's because the investigation is moving forward and, and put him at ease, and then he can explain that to the American people. You can't both say it, it needs to remain kind of secret and it's a nothing burger. I mean, the, the third option is that it is optically bad. Like, in right. a number of things, let's say, you know, Trump having people stay in the Trump Hotel and benefiting. There were, remember, all, there were all of these uh, emoluments clause arguments about why Trump should be impeached because he was self-paying. Well, I remember that word, of course. <laughs> you know, you know, all of these, like, the, the kind of things The emoluments! <laughs> the emoluments! Yeah, but, but, you know, there, there were things that Trump did that might not have risen to the <laughs> level of requiring him to be, you know, impeached. But there were, I, I would argue, bad form for mm -hmm. a president. Jamie Carter famously gives up his peanut farm to be president. With, to, to get rid of Trump any installed his children perception. In the White House, yeah. Exactly. You know, so it could be one of those things that the Biden family doesn't really want to deal with, especially in an election season, but isn't, in fact, illegal. And, and that sort of feels, given the posture that both sides are taking right now, l more likely than not to me. Uh, because, again, if it's truly nothing, you're basically feeding a Republican frenzy right now. And the way they're characterizing this as evidence of real corruption. Right. It's bad. It's right. a bad look. If you want to stop the speculation from re Republicans about the Hunter Biden investigation, then just show us what you're doing and show us what you've had. And then and then there can be I mean the 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 uncertain state of this thing for so long like that's been a that's been an effective um arrow in the quiver of Republicans because it is so ambiguous. One other one other counterpoint here. They're just saying, well, you have nothing to hide. Show me all your cards. Open your house. Submit mm -hmm. to search and seizure. seizure. I mean, that's what they always say to us. <laughs> well, it's, it's, but it's obviously an anti-civil liberties sort of a position. And there was an argument when people were saying, we need to see Trump's tax, tax returns. We need to see all of this stuff. You know, the, there was pushback at the time that says, well, no, you're using these kinds of investigations and weaponizing them to attack a candidate or a president that you happen not to like. Do you think there's any credibility to the argument that something similar is going no. on here? And there's an attempt to expose something untoward in a way that isn't actually well geared to finding criminal wrongdoing, but is intended to embarrass the president? I don't think it's counter to civil liberties to demand that the government be totally transparent. Like, the, the government uh, officials and investigators, FBI agents, don't have a constitutional right to, like, not have scrutiny from the American public, right? That's a—the Constitution well, protects the, the our rights, safeguards our rights against theirs. The president's son. Well, yeah, and he is totally, fully in, uh, entitled to all due process and presumption of innocence and search and seizure protection and all that. But the investigation into him is a, is a separate thing. That's a government thing, and we have the right to know what was going on with Look, that. Look, I, I, I am generally of the mind that— Officials, uh, mm -hmm. senior folks like people in the White House deserve a higher level of scrutiny, and I am reluctant to argue in their defense. I will say, however, there is an interesting parallel between the frustration that some Republicans have with the IRS because it is perceived to be weaponized in various ways, like it was 
uh, toward uh, Matt Taibbi and saying that these institutions can be sicked on members of the population in a way that is coercive and threatening and inappropriate and anti-democratic, and the ways in which some of these investigations can also mm. similarly be weaponized, both against Donald Trump and against Joe Biden. And I, I, it seems to be a very politically messy Pandora's box to open that could come back and bite the uh, Republicans in the proverbial rear in ways that they uh, might not be anticipating down the line. Mm. Well, we will continue to follow that, and we'll have more rising right after this. The conservative fast food world is in shambles this afternoon of Chick-fil-A having a vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, as some has some conservative groups calling for a boycott. The fast food giant has been a preferred dining venue of many on the right over the years, not only due to its tasty fried chicken sandwiches, I find them tasty at least, uh, but also in part due to its religious roots and uh, perception of anti-LGBT organizing. A previous announcement of Eric McReynolds, who is the VP for DEI at the company and actually has apparently been there since uh, 2020, has some claiming the company is going woke. Woke, Chick-fil-A, <laughs> Brianna, what's going on here? Uh, I mean, I, so I'm seeing a lot of tweets from very angry Charlie Kirk type people. Charlie Kirk said Chick-fil-A goes woke, commits to DEI. Um, Jenna Ellis says the same. Benny Johnson is calling for a boycott. Lauren Chen says his company's gone downhill. Brandon Straka says that when he used to be a liberal, he was boycotting Chick-fil-A, and he's a conservative and is going to boycott them again. Yeah, that's the best part, I think, of this particular story, is that unwittingly, Chick-fil-A has brought together people on the left and the right. Everybody's boycotting Chick-fil-A now for different reasons. People on the left have long, as you mentioned, perceived Chick-fil-A to be an anti-gay establishment. Uh, and now it seems that because they hired a DEI person, which is the equivalent of just having an HR department these days, they're getting a lot of ire from the right. So right, you, know, and, you can't and win for losing. I, I, according to our reporting, it's not even that this is a new figure, but they put out a, the person put out a statement. So here, here's here's the statement. Um, this is what is, a, is considered to be objectionable. They, it's titled "When We're Better at Together, We're Better Together." Syntactically, I'm not sure about that, but that's the, the top uh, all line. All right, I disagree. I'm going to boycott them. <laughs> that's a dumb statement. When we're better at together, we're better together. They went on to say one of our core values yeah, at and the genius who put that statement together probably makes half a million dollars at this company. All right, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> they, go on, they go on to say one of our core values at Chick-fil-A is that we are better together. When we combine our unique backgrounds and experiences with the culture of belonging, we can discover new ways to strengthen the quality of care we deliver to customers, to the communities we serve, and to the world. We understand that getting better at together means we learn better, care better, grow better, and serve better. Chick-fil-A's commit, uh, commitment to being better at together means embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion. Say better one more time. Into everything we do. That's it. All right, you've convinced me to start a boycott. <laughs> it's just such empty platitudes. I mean, of course it is. All of this. That's look, what DEI is. Th this is this is the problem with all of these boycotts and all of the people who are invested either from the left or on, on the right mm -hmm. in any of these companies caring at all about anybody one way or another. Target doesn't care in particular about gay people is not going to invest in the rights substantively of gay people, their material rights in particular, nor is Disney, right? 
Disney ultimately was only pressured to make a statement against the Don't Say Gay bill by some of their employees who felt abandoned or thrown under the bus, mm -hmm. but it wasn't just the corporation saying, you know what, we should do a, we should do a solid today and, and take our place in the pantheon of uh, LGBTQIA heroes in America and take a stand against Ron DeSantis. That's how none of this goes. Now Chick-fil-A is in a position where, of course, like every single corporation in America have like beefed up their HR department by including DEI, which is the predominant kind of H HR status quo. Why? Because in order to insulate themselves from lawsuits, right. they need to be able to say, we did what the industry standard thing is to do, and if anybody complains at the company, we cannot be held liable. This isn't about gay people. This isn't about black people. This isn't about anything, any marginalized group. Well, and that's what it's about I profit. wish the conservatives, well, right, it's, I mean, it's about, yes, it's about the bottom line. Many of these companies are not necessarily totally freely choosing to, you just have to do this because you're, you could incur great liability, as you're saying. I mean, the, there are, there's civil rights law, there's non-discrimination law for, uh, for you know, various, depending on what state you're, you're in, for various categories of gender and identity and those kinds of things. And I mean, this is like why, when conservatives were, some were ballistic that, you know, Fox had, had uh, COVID requirements or something. It's the city, the city of New York had these requirements. Right. They, you, you can fight them just like people, some people got mad at the Daily Wire when they said, okay, well, if you, uh, Stephen Crowder, you know, get banned from YouTube, which is your entire business right. model, we're not going to still pay you the entire $50 million. Like, organizations operate within reasonable incentives. If the incentive structure, it, because of civil rights law, non-discrimination law, and other things, you know, employment, OSHA, all that stuff, <laughs> they're going to have HR departments and they're going to have DEI departments. And I, I will agree, you'll probably think some of the things that come out of those departments are kind of meaningless, you know, just hand-waving at actual social justice and, like, you know, putting a Band-Aid on something. Some of it makes the dynamics I, worse at the workplace. Some of it makes, right. I have no fondness whatsoever for DEI stuff. I think a lot of it is like the very worst of wokeness, social justice. It's 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 obnoxious. It's often not helpful. Device, you know, these we've all been through those kinds of training seminars sure. that seem that seem like a waste of everyone's time, if not just totally counterproductive. That really like reduce people very much to mm -hmm. their to their affinity group mm -hmm. in a really alienating dehumanizing sure. ways um, it's 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 not great I think it's substantially a huge waste of time but um, but it's not like the company's like you know what would be great let's do that They're like how do we no. write this how do we write off this requirement how do we prevent lawsuits yeah, and that's and that's a compliance official tells you to do that I think that's exactly right now Simifor's Dave Weigel is reporting how the uh, boycotts over at Target and Bud Light have boosted efforts to walk back brand support of the LGBTQIA plus community, especially during Pride Month. And lawmakers like California Representative Robert Garcia warning his state parties uh, sorry, his state party's LGBTQ caucus to be ready for a Pride Month fight. Weigel writes, energized by a boycott of Bud Light and before that by Ron DeSantis' parental rights battle with Disney, 
Social conservatives see this year's Pride Month as an opportunity to make corporations pay for LGBTQ-friendly marketing, especially for project, uh, products rather enjoyed by children. And on those fronts, a song called Boycott Target is reportedly topping the charts on iTunes. <laughs> Can't wait to listen to that. Bud Light sales are down 30%. Pride organizers in Florida are claiming that the community is leaving the state in droves. Uh, I mean, yes, the, like the boycott against Bud Light has worked. Uh, it has substantially reduced sales of that beer. Even, you know, I mean, there obviously there's some incoherence to it. People choosing an alternative beer that's owned by the same company, all that stuff. But uh, they can't, they can't get rid of Bud Life. Yeah, look, I'm not going to be sitting here uh, shedding any tears, uh, playing small violins for multinational corporations mm -hmm. losing money. I, I do think the targeting of you have the to working break out class. rainbow-colored tiny violin. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I do think that the working class people who are getting harassed at Target, the people who are being employed at these places, that's a bad PR look because those are your constituents. Uh, retail workers mm -hmm. are the number one type of working class job in this country. We can sit here and fantasize about a world where there's this kind of a uh, working class guy in a hard hat on a construction lot or something that is the classical picture of the American worker. But your average working class person who's supposed to be the subject of a lot of these populist appeals from the right are retail workers. And a lot of them, frankly, at this point are younger, they're gayer, they have gay friends. And even if they're not into some of the more, let's say, you know, lefty, extreme, more radical, newer, I should say, aspects of gender identity and the like, you know, we, we live in a world where we feel like we're regressing, where, you know, back in 2016, Donald Trump issued pride paraphernalia from his store, and now we have people who are ostensibly members of that same political cohort are trashing pride rainbow displays in Target, and there's a question as to whether or not that sort of thing is going to turn off normie voters. We'll see over the next 18 months or so. Yeah, we'll see. But uh, unlike boycotting a specific product, you can't boycott like the DEI industry. <laughs> I mean, you can try, but the companies are still going to go down that uh, that direction as long as the incentives in place. That's a lot harder of a thing to resist because, again, it is about their financial incentives and their, yeah. their difficulty grappling with various non-discrimination policies. Yeah. More rising right after this. President Joe Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy are making the victory rounds on their 11th hour debt ceiling agreement, but their boasting could be premature because at least 29 House Republicans have said that they would vote no on the bill because it doesn't cut spending enough. That includes Representative Bob Hope of Virginia, who downplayed the threat of a default as a, quote, silly, scary narrative. Nonetheless, McCarthy did earn the support of three high-profile Republicans, Freedom Caucus members Thomas Massey, Jim Jordan, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, late last night. The House is expected to hold a floor vote on the deal today around 8 p.m. The country is currently set to default on June 5th. The Congressional Budget Office's report on the agreement was released last night. It seems the bill's controversial hike in work requirements for SNAP beneficiaries will actually increase spending and enrollment in the program overall due to key exemptions. 
Here's Speaker McCarthy defending the work requirements from Capitol Hill yesterday. Found for things we bought that we can return, like COVID money, money to China and others, we're bringing that back. We might have a child that has no job, no dependents, but sitting on a couch. We're going to encourage that person to get a job and have to go to work, which gives them worth and value. We're going to look at other things, too, to make the economy stronger. Got to put all those children without dependents to work. Joining us now to weigh in is economic policy analyst and rising guest host, Jessica Burbank. Sorry, Jessica. It's so good to see you here on the other side of the camera. What do you make of that statement from Kevin McCarthy and the posture that Republicans are taking right now toward the debt ceiling? Yeah, good to be with you all uh, on the other side of things. But yeah, Kevin McCarthy, I mean, you're getting all this political posturing from these folks who make it seem like it's really noble to cut public spending, which it's not. People are quite upset that the current dollars they pay into the U.S. government and in their state and local taxes are not being spent on things that really matter to them. It turns out when people's tax dollars go towards things that they care about, like school for their kids, like better roads, and they really see the outcome of the dollars they put into the government, they don't mind it as much. I think the reason that people are upset when they hear, oh, the, the public deficit or the debt is at X number, it's because they don't know where that money's going. And quite frankly, the Pentagon doesn't know either. Whenever we talk about the deficit, we have to talk about the $858 billion that is approved in defense spending to fund the Pentagon when the Pentagon hasn't passed an audit. And so they're proposing all of these cuts to public programs that really matter for people and holding the average economic worker hostage so that they can pass essentially austerity measures. And it's ridiculous. I mean, I also think we should cut the Pentagon's budget in addition to everything else. Um, you know, polls fi find that six—I'm looking at CNN—60 percent of people support raising the debt ceiling alongside uh, spending cuts. I think people, while you're right, individual programs, some of them are more popular than others. I think the American people's broad sentiment is that their money is not being spent well, is being spent inefficiently, that there's a lot of loss and a lot of bureaucracy, and also that people should, if they're getting help from the government, they should have to work for it. That's the logic, at least, of the work requirements for SNAP, although when you dig into the details, what, this is actually going to add to the deficit because it's going to enroll more people in the program, and double-checking work requirements doesn't actually save any money because then you have to hire people to double-check them. Mm -hmm. So it's very confused on that front. But what, what would you say to Americans who I think is a, a significant number, if not an outright majority, who do want, in theory, th think we're spending too much or we're spending beyond our means, and, uh, and it needs to be cut back, even if then when you say, well, well, okay, here's this program, let's cut it, they say, no, not that one, no, not that one, no, not that one. I would say it's just simply not true uh, that it's the case that we're spending, quote, too much money. Uh, so it is true that not all of the dollars that fund the public budget are, are raised through tax revenue. Uh, they're issued through bonds. Is it always necessary to issue bonds to have a public budget? No. Do other countries around the world have debt limits? No. It's a handful of countries. It's unnecessary to say 
we cannot spend more than this arbitrary number. There's no math that goes into it. There's no number where they say this would be too much and unsustainable. To have an economy grow, you need to put dollars into it. We can think of dollars as kind of a tool to mobilize land, uh, resources, tools, machinery. You need to spend dollars to be productive. And so if we were to eliminate the public budget, we would really hinder our, our ability for our economy to grow. And that's really what they're doing here. Here. And so to say, you know, we need to increase work requirements for people to get SNAP benefits, that's a bit absurd when our monetary policy right now is to raise interest rates to make it more difficult for people to borrow money to, again, mobilize resources and be productive economically. That means there's going to be less people investing in businesses and starting businesses because it's more expensive to take bank loans out. And so there's going to be less jobs. That's their intended purpose. Jerome Powell's intended purpose in his report by the end of the year is to make another additional 2 million people jobless. So to add this requirement that you have to have a job in order to receive SNAP benefits when their intentional plan, the federal government, is to make more people unemployed, it just doesn't make sense. So it's bad fiscal policy all around. We can get rid of the debt limit entirely and fund public programs to put real productive capacity to use. The unemployed population, there's no reason they shouldn't be working. In fact, we're actually leaving real productive capacity on the table by intentionally keeping a population of people unemployed. That's entirely unnecessary. So it's a disaster that they've created. Why? Because when working people have low wages and are desperate for whatever job they can find because they're kept intentionally unemployed and they're not given an, an alternative to feed themselves by something like SNAP benefits or other social safety net programs, now they're pretty easy to be exploited. They're willing to work for long hours, take jobs for low wages. That's really good for the corporations that a lot of our elected officials are shareholders in. I think that's a really good point, Jessica. Now, President Biden said this weekend he will not consider proposals to do away with the debt ceiling entirely, but that he is open to looking into the 14th Amendment for future debt ceiling fights. Jessica, how credible do you think that is? And what do you make of the way the Progressive Caucus, other progressive leaders have been addressing this crisis, accepting the framing that we shouldn't be looking at raising revenue or cutting the military budget right now, um, and negotiating over these uh, SNAP benefits and TANF benefits in a way that initially they said they would not do. Yeah, I, just Biden saying that at all is comical, because it's like, if you have this option, to avoid the crisis we're in. And you're saying, well, if I use my power given to me by the Constitution, that might be controversial. More controversial than allowing the government to shut down and intentionally having the US government default on their obligations. I'm not sure which is more controversial. It just goes to show his moral priorities here because he does have the power through the 14th Amendment. Uh, and it's not really a power, it's an obligation. Uh, to ensure that the public debt shall not be questioned. So prior administrations have actually sent troops to the Federal Reserve and said, you have to issue the bonds to fund the spending because that's your constitutional duty. Congress has passed this budget. And so the fact that he decided not to do that now, but said, you know, maybe I'd consider it in the future, it's clear what his political priorities are. He's not questioning whether or not it would be legal for him to invoke the 14th Amendment here. He's just saying that's politically not his choice of what to do right now. So he could have, Biden, could have avoided this crisis altogether. He chose not to. 
And so there are liberals and there are Democrats who also are very down with cutting social safety net programs. This is neoliberalism, classic neoliberalism. The fact that progressives are working with the liberals who are pushing this austerity politics of cutting social programs that's really going to hurt working people, you shouldn't be working with them at all. You should be telling the story of what's actually happening here because at some point you've got to say, I'm not going to work with them because there's no ends that they're going to achieve that is good for the American people. So what am I going to do? What's my position of power as a member of Congress? Well, people will listen to me when I talk. So I'm going to tell the American people what's actually going on, that the debt ceiling is being used as a fear mongering tactic to enforce this game of chicken and force people to take away things that they're entitled to. This is their government. They work very hard to provide not only tax dollars that they pay into it, but also they increase productivity through their day-to-day -day work and they're not paid for the full value of their labor. Where is that going? To the board, to the shareholders, to the CEOs and owners of corporations. And they're entitled to the fruits of their labor. That should come to them through public programs, through good schools, through infrastructure, through healthcare. And it's not right now. So when they talk about social safety nets and those who receive the benefits of them, those people being leeches or freeloaders, it's actually quite the opposite. It's the people who are exploiting our labor that are the real freeloaders. And then the people that they give lobbying money to and people who are elected officials who have shares in these corporations, they're making money off of the people they're calling leeches and saying we need to cut the spending for mm. And so it's all entirely backwards the way they frame this narrative. And it's really mm. important that progressives tell this story too, not just people like us in media. Mm. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Bree. The Daily Mail released a cache of documents today exposing the extent of Jeffrey Epstein's close connections with celebrities and elites. The Daily Mail got a hold of never-before-seen emails detailing the disgraced financier's private calendars and communication that included past presidents, prime ministers, and billionaires like Bill Gates, Peter Thiel, Facebook's early investor Sean Parker, and other prominent names. Epstein's estate gave the files to the U.S. Virgin Islands government. The Daily Mail obtained the files and broke down who and how the people were involved. I'm looking at this article. Uh, this is Irina Shayk, Chris Rock, Richard Branson, Peter Thiel, as mentioned, Jeff Koons, um, Mariah Carey's ex, Jamie Dimon, the chief executive of J.P. Morgan, right. who uh, is you know part of this legal dispute with the Virgin Islands. Right. So the, the question is how much J.P. Morgan and implicitly Jamie Dimon were aware of why and how Epstein was using the bank to facilitate the tr financial transfers that facilitated these crimes, the yes. pedophilia, the arrangement of uh, meetups with these young girls, all of this kind of thing. And so having this private address book that shows kind of an intimate look at his efforts to reach out to various public figures, to talk to them, to rehabilitate his public image, all after he had already spent, what, an 18-month uh, prison term for pedophilia is is particularly mm -hmm. revealing, especially since there are these emails back and forth to J.P. Morgan figures like uh, Jess Staley, uh, who I think we talked about in another segment, who's been a, 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 a center point of some of the, these uh, investigations. 
Right. There's also a lot more with the Prince Andrew situation mm -hmm. here. Um, shows evidence of meeting with Prince Andrew and his ex-wife, Sarah Fergus mm -hmm. Ferguson, that Epstein had very intimate, detailed knowledge of their finances, maybe more. Um, in a, in a scheduling entry for March 3rd, 2010, Epstein's assistant wrote, still need to try and schedule the Duchess for Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and moreover, so apparently Epstein was also trying to persuade uh, J.P. Morgan to work with Bill Gates on a $100 million fund for elite donors and a crunch meeting that was taking place back in 2011. And so remember, this is coming at the same time that we just found out about the story where he was basically blackmailing um, Bill Gates over having an affair with someone who was of age and consensual and all of that. And Bill Gates just recently came out and said, yeah, it me, I did it, to get out from under, I think, the more heavy accusations of it being right, that he might associated with. Yes. Exactly. But it's, it's interesting to see here Epstein trying to kind of work on Bill Gates's behalf in these financial contexts, when at the same time, apparently, he had this hold over some of these figures as a consequence of blackmailing them. So it does, it does present an interesting picture. Are we going to find out that some of these figures that he has relationships with um, had these kind of coercive relationships the way that uh, Bill Gates had? At what point did it become coercive as opposed to a voluntary relationship where they had mutually beneficial business interests with each other? Why is someone like Bill Gates needing to have someone like Jeffrey Epstein, who was not a financial expert in any way, advocating on his behalf for uh, donations and, and working with a bank in this way? It is, it is a very curious picture that's being painted. David Blaine, the magician, as well. Mm. Uh, apparently, their, their schedule says that in June 2013, uh, the schedule says David Blaine will stop by toward the end of the dinner. Maybe he just appears there. <laughs> Maybe he wishes the story would disappear. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, we should, yeah. We no, I mean, we gotta, you gotta poke, laugh. It is, or you cry. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 amazing. It's amazing his level of connection to just influential, famous people. Because remember, um, he started out by first insinuating himself into a job as a teacher at New York Prep School Dalton, having no he qualifications makes to even to have that millions job. Millions and millions and millions of dollars as a stock broker type person, money manipulator, money, money yeah. mover, makes, makes an absolute killing and then uses that money to buy his way into high society and has connections with, I mean, it's just, it's incredible that, that, and that people would continue to associate with him, to take his calls. Yeah. Um, Cause this isn't like, this is this book, his schedule, it's not just his, like his aspirations. It's not like he's saying, I would love to meet Prince Andrew. I would love to call Bill Clinton. I would love to do all these things. Like he did them. Like he, yeah. the, the, people willingly associated with themselves, they, they, when they had money issues, when they had money questions, they called him, they set up meetings with him. There's, there's evidence of that, like people, people turned to him they relied on him. Look at the look at the Noam Chomsky story. Where, yeah, right. Where Noam Chomsky right. he was moving money around for Noam Chomsky when asked for comment. Noam Chomsky says it's basically none of your business. But I, yeah, I he 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 helped me out with financial matters. That college matters. president who wanted his wife's poetry something or other. Oh, I thought that was just a donation that was right. made uh, yeah, on behalf. That's what of, he wanted. But, okay. but of all the people you could solicit a donation from. There are a lot of people who had not, you know, previously been incarcerated for sexual misconduct right. with minors. 
Right, right. Well, you know, I do think that this, <laughs> look, I, I think that this particular story, remember this is all, all of this information is the consequence of this lawsuit that's happening in the Virgin mm -hmm. Islands. And I, you and know, good journalism by uh, by places like the Wall Street Journal and now the Daily Mail. Yeah, I, but it's amazing how little of this information we were, we were able to get out in the context of just the normal American reporting practices. Potentially because there were so many people now were reading from this trove of information who were personally implicated. I mean, that has been the subtext of this entire story. That anything that can be done to keep the people implicated from being named will be done, which is why people look so skeptically on the events surrounding Epstein's ultimate demise. Mm. So I think this is a, this lawsuit, I'm not saying it, it needs to be brought just to get discovery, but the consequence of it, uh, of all of this discovery material coming out is fascinating. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who are looking very nervously at this, including Bill Gates, who, who very, very quickly tried to distance himself from it or has, I think, maybe successfully distanced himself by saying, yes, I was having an affair, but that's it. Yeah. Well, it remains to be seen if that is I mean, a reminder that Staley, this JP Morgan official, yeah. uh, the Daily Mail again has these just absurd, these unbelievable emails where Staley says to Epstein, I realize the danger in sending this email. This is December 4th, 2009, but it was great to be able today to give you in New York City a long, heartfelt hug. And then they talk about Disney princesses and it's just utterly disgusting and revolting and uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there's so many political figures across the aisle also who have associations with Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Do you think there are any political implications here? You see him with Donald Trump. You see him with Elon Musk. You see him with Bill Clinton. You this see really him. is textbook elites versus everyone else right. because it is so, so bipartisan, so cross-ideological. The, the ideological interest here in was, was in moving around, maybe hiding, giving money. Money, money, money. That's it. It didn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. It just mattered if you had money or fame or prestige. That's what he was interested in cultivating. Uh, this is, you know, you couldn't, you had to buy your way into this or he had to be interested in you because of money. So it's really an elites versus everyone else story, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Which is right. why there's so much interest among the, in, uh, on the story among everyone else. <laughs> Not a lot of interest in the elites in having this continuing to be yeah. reported. More rising right after this. Yesterday, Republican Senator Ted Cruz clapped back at critics who called him out for, of all things, denouncing Uganda's anti-gay law. He doubled down in a tweet directed at the detractor saying, quote, Jenna, not sure why you're defending this barbaric Ugandan law. It imposes life imprisonment for consenting adults who engage in gay sex. That's ridiculous. You or I may or may not agree with their choices, but consenting adults should not go to jail for what they do in their own bedrooms. Cruz particularly drew the ire from some social conservatives. He went back and forth with a former GOP Senate candidate, Lauren Witzke, who has vehemently spoken out against Pride Month and protections for the LGBT community. Twitter users have had a field day in trolling <laughs> Witzke's anti-gay <laughs> postings. Ted Cruz's defense of gay people in Uganda comes just a month after he called for an investigation of Anheuser Bush for their campaign with Dylan Mulvaney. He's also voted against the Respect for Marriage Act, which gave statutory protections to same-sex marriages in the U.S. So the thing with the Ugandan law, so I saw some, uh, yeah, so he said this is obviously It's a bad evil. law. Uh, then the pushback came that um, 
Um, some people are saying, well, th this only prescribes the death penalty for people, for gay people who have sex with children or who spread HIV to other people. And it's true that the death penalty was only prescribed for those things, but it was still giving imprisonment for just gay sex. consenting adults having gay sex. Yeah. Um, yeah. And anyway, that shouldn't be the... It, it was remarkable yeah. to watch. So there's a couple of questions here I yeah. have. The first one is, what do you think provoked Ted Cruz to weigh in on this issue right now? I have some theories. Do you have any? I want to hear your theories first. Okay. This is might be too, like, I'm, I'm like galaxy braining this, but potentially Ted Cruz might be looking around, having some questions about whether or not the Republican Party is making the right bets on the culture war, feeling the need to put some stakes in the ground, saying we're mm -hmm. only going to go so far. And this Ugandan law seemed like an easy, an, an easy one that most people can disagree on. It's bad to throw people in jail just for consenting adults having sex in their homes for being gay. Right. And so let me just make, let me assure the public that Republicans haven't gone so crazy that we're not willing to say the easy thing, which is that this authoritarian Ugandan law is bad. What do you make of it? Do you think that this is maybe evidence of some concern among traditional Republicans that some of this Ron DeSantis culture war stuff is going too far? Yeah, I have no idea. I, I think it's, yes, a good idea to, I, I see it more in like a, like a rah-rah America, like America is a good country sure. compared I mean, to Uganda because we don't, bonus. you know, execute people for homosexuality. Right. Um, something we can all, all get on right. board with. But we did also used to have plenty of criminal statutes that yeah. did criminalize exactly this kind of behavior. And yeah. the laws that decriminalized it, the, the Supreme Court um, rulings relied on privacy rights and privacy interests to do exactly that in cases like Lawrence v. Texas, which is why a lot of people after the Dobbs decision basically said, you know, we're getting rid of that privacy right um, rationale. And Clarence Thomas specifically recalled several other privacy right style sure. cases saying, I don't know about the future of these, that people were concerned that we were going to backtrack to a world where we could, again, leave it up to the states to criminalize well, those kind of okay. behaviors if they wanted sure, to. Sure. But as with some of the abortion stuff, one could, one could think that one could agree with Thomas, for instance, who said that he just he doesn't think the Constitution prohibits states from having these policies. Not that he thinks this policy is a good policy. Right, he but, just doesn't think the Constitution right, but effectively, forbids states th from doing This that. is the dance that everyone does about states' rights. Over yeah. and over again, historically, states, the idea of states' rights has been used to eliminate federal protections for historically marginalized communities right. so that states can then pass laws that attack them in exactly the way that these laws, which right. Ted Cruz ostensibly saying he, saying he objects to, at least when they're in Uganda, did once exist in America and would probably exist in America again. And you have to win at the ballot box if you want the policies to be one way or the other. No, no, no. There are policies that on a that w might win on a state level, but not on a federal level, and that's the conflict mm -hmm. that we're looking at right now. Whether or not, so the question is, should a state be able to abrogate people's free speech rights and get rid of the First Amendment? Right. No, we have decided as a country that there are some things that are above state consideration because they're basic fundamental rights. We have enshrined those in our constitution. Well, now, but it's the two-step though, because you know, as written, the First Amendment only prohibits. The federal government from it from violating sure, but the, the point but is then the subsequent sure, but this isn't just about the first amendment; it it's the all states. of the amendments. The whole right. point is that we have some constitutionally protected rights on a federal level, and that historically those rights have been protecting people who are mar marginalized because they're minority right. and uh, some religious don't groups. Think 
or Privacy ethnic Privacy is one groups. of them because it doesn't specifically No, the, say the it. problem is that we live in a world where we do not have the, even though the popular opinion is the same as Ted Cruz's, which is that you shouldn't throw people in jail for having gay consensual sex, that we don't have a, a, a legislative body that would be likely to pass a law like that. Do you think that we live in a world where Republicans, despite the obviousness of what, Repub of what Ted Cruz is saying, would pass a, a constitutional amendment to protect gay sex <laughs> in this way that would protect it from, from state incursion, even if privacy rights were eliminated by the Supreme Court? I think such a, such a thing would pass it, 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 there was a recent, I, I don't remember specifically what the issue was, but it, there was an LGBT issue at the federal level that got some Republican support. and had Some Republican support and passing both chambers is, is a very different thing. So this, this, is, this is what's so interesting about this. So Ted Cruz tweets this. Well, if it gets this, all the Democratic support, it gets some Republican support, it passes. Well, that's, that's a big question, especially if it's framed specifically about this particular issue, which is gay sex. Do you think we're going to be able to get a majority of the House, including whatever it is, six or Republicans or whatever you would need, mm -hmm. to cross the the, the border the gay to our constitutional be by death. Uh, yes. No, <laughs> no. You you pointed this out. It wasn't punishable by death. It's against imprisonment. So it would basically basically be a constitutional amendment protecting the rights of gay people the same way that we have the Fourteenth Amendment, etc., protecting the rights of black people and other specific well, groups like that some, are provided for in the Constitution. I mean, in the same way you got some people voting against um, a federal anti-lynching law, not because they think it should be okay to lynch people, but because that's should well, the point, pre preempt state policies on the that. The point I'm trying thing. to make is that when you look at the comments under Ted Cruz's post, when uh, although you might say, well, obviously, Americans would support a constitutional amendment to protect the rights of gay people to have consensual sex, the comments suggest a very different American is emerging. And there's a question as to whether, and this is an open question, there's a question as to whether the Ron DeSantis wing of the party that is making wokeism the central facet of its entire political project is getting radically to the right of where Americans are and, frankly, potentially dragging America to the right with them, going from a place where in 2016, Donald Trump very proudly sold pride merchandise. You know, and I think that Donald Trump could and did say things like, of course, gays are welcome in the Republican Party. I think we're getting to a place where there are he many people who would say no. He specifically said, we love and will protect our LGBTQ citizens. He said that yes. in his that speech. Peter Thiel, who is openly gay, gave a speech right before that saying he's proud and happy to be an out gay Republican. And it drew tons of cheers. Yep. Yeah. So that's Trump. Yeah. And that's Ted Cruz being in a very normy place on this. Right. And then we have the comments underneath, which to me reflect a different kind of sentiment that is both being well, there's certainly evoked a by, wait a minute, wait a minute, but it's both being evoked by Ron DeSantis and frankly, as people pointed out and as we read in the intro, are also indicative of some of the positions that Ted Cruz himself has taken over the years. So I think that liberals have been trying to make this argument that there is a connection between pushing for some of this anti-trans bathroom legislation. He voted against the Respect for Marriage Act. You know, we're saying you're, you're making this argument. Well, or he, he doesn't support same-sex marriage. I mean, that many Republicans don't. Okay, a majority so, of the country so, does, but so people are making a majority this, of Republicans don't. This is the don't. case that liberals have been making, and they've been told that they were, you know, being exaggerating and hyperbolic this entire changed. time. The case that they are making is that pr promoting some of these laws, and that Ron DeSantis is taking it even further and making it the central facet of his entire political project, are having the effect of making it so that we once were in a country where even Republicans mm -hmm. like Donald Trump said, hey, gay people have a right to live here, be here, 
be protected by the country's laws to a place where if there's a vocal majority of people who won't even, a vocal minority of people, I should say, who won't even agree with this statement that a Ugandan law that says you're thrown in jail for having consensual gay sex is a problem. I suppose, but you could say the same thing about the LGBT activist movement. You could say that by pushing at the margins some activists on trans issues or, or you know, for children specifically, you have risked tainting or associating the entire LGBT project with a very, with a much less, with a much more controversial you and much less broadly that, popular stance. You could say that, but those people aren't running for president. Uh, Ron DeSantis is. And the, the, the tee-up, the contrast between the old guard, what is now this like kind of weirdly classical-seeming old guard Republican and Donald Trump, who's seeming... He's a tolerant left in this situation versus Ron DeSantis. I think that this Ted Cruz statement I, I is testing know, the waters of this culture war. I don't know why Ron DeSantis is any more um, liable for uh, invoking the or, or, or pushing people in an anti-gay direction by this logic than... Again, activists who are pushing at the margins of public opinion on trans because issues. Because I think he has a much bigger platform, and he's running for president of the United States, and he's the governor of Florida, and he's passed these laws, as opposed to somebody on lives at TikTok with pink hair who's just sitting making annoying videos in the back of their car. Well, what do you think about this? We'd love to hear from you. More rising right after this. Both sides of the political aisle have claimed victory on student debt in President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's new debt ceiling agreement, with the Republicans saying that the end of the student loan pause is finalized, and the White House claiming that nothing from their side was forfeited. The deal says that the pause on student loans will end 60 days after June 30th. Representative Ayanna Presley has filed an amendment to preserve the student loan payment pause in the debt deal. In her amendment, Presley wrote, the student loan payment pause has been an essential lifeline for workers and families struggling to make ends meet. Joining us now to discuss is Deputy Executive Director at the Stu Student Borrower Protection Center, Persis Yu. Welcome, Persis. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here. All right. So let's break down what is really happening here. Both sides are in some ways claiming victory. The student debt payment pause, which has been going on since Donald Trump instated it in the early days of COVID, the deadline has been pushed back repeatedly. The current deadline um, that is going to wrap up this summer could potentially have been continued to be pushed back, giving student debtors continued relief, at least up until the Supreme Court decision and beyond the Supreme Court decision, frankly, except for as part of this deal, it is finally being enshrined as officially over at that time. What do you make of that bargain? Yeah, so we are, we are very frustrated with the bargain, right? Because what it does is it locks the president and the administration into taking an action before having any idea about what is going to happen at the Supreme Court. Um, I think it's really critical for us to remember why uh, there's cancellation in the first place. Back in August, when the president announced his cancellation plan, what he said is that we are going to restart repayment, but the way to restart repayment on the student loan system is to provide borrowers with cancellation. Because if we do not have cancellation, what we know is going to happen is we know that there is going to be huge financial distress among student loan borrowers. And the only way to prevent that is with cancellation. And so you know, there was a plan in place to possibly start payments back in September. But now the president has locked himself into that position without knowing the outcome. And now borrowers are at the mercy of what the Supreme Court does. 
Hmm. And with that decision expected uh, soon, I believe, you know, how will the outcome of that case affect the real? Uh, how do, are you predicting it's going to actually affect them having to pay back student loans? Because there's been debate over the process was in motion and the payments were halted again, all of that. You know, what do you think is going to come out of the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, the reality is that 40 million borrowers have their financial futures on the line here. Um, and it really is a very tenuous place for student loan borrowers right now. Um, obviously, we don't know what the outcome of that case is going to be. Uh, we're all we're all waiting on that. But it is really critical because I think as the data shows that this relief is absolutely necessary in order to prevent borrowers from um, falling into default uh, when payments resume again. And I think one of the things that's important for, for everyone to understand is how devastating default is for student loan borrowers. Um, when you default on your loans, you can have your wages seized without ever going to court. You can have your tax refund, including you know vital uh, refundable tax credits like the earned income tax credit for working families um, seized. Folks on Social Security or on disability can have those benefits seized. And so there's really devastating consequences of defaulting on their loans. Uh, we know that from previous pauses that this is the likely outcome unless there is cancellation. Um, and this will impact not just the, you know, 40 something million borrowers, but their communities and their families as well. So I think it's not just about these borrowers, but about our economy at large. What would you say to someone who says, those effects are entirely foreseeable and are the natural consequence of borrowing more money than you can possibly pay back and is a good reason not to actually do that in the first place. Well, I mean, I think it is worth us stepping back and looking at how we got here, right? And why do we have a student loan crisis? And it is because of decades of disinvestment from the federal and the state governments. And that is why we're here. You know, we have a lot of um, we have a lot of folks in the Supreme Court, on Congress, that when they went to college, college actually was affordable. But right now, we're in a situation where you need a degree for economic mobility. We have spent generations telling people that education is their pathway out of poverty um, into the middle class. And then we make college entirely unaffordable for them and absolutely hammer them when they don't succeed. And so I think that there is a lot more going on than just some borrowers borrowing more than they could afford. And I think that's why we are in a student loan crisis now. Those, the impact of that crisis was exacerbated by the pandemic. And that's why we need to have cancellation if we are to have a hope of moving forward right now. I think that's such an important point. I mean, it does feel very odd and sort of gaslighty to have spent my entire life being told that the path to upper mobility is education. The reason why my particular demographic group is economically disadvantaged is because we don't value education. To say that a college degree is absolutely necessary for upper mobility, to have people telling you that who spent a few thousand dollars a semester on college to then be asked to to be told explicitly it is worth it for you to pay 40 right. 50 60 thousand dollars a year for college and then at this juncture we told oh apps actually never mind um we're changing our minds joe biden recently issuing a statement saying we want to move forward to a world where people don't have to have a college education to get ahead i think that's admirable i think there are many people for whom college isn't an appropriate fit but it's worth noting one that's this cancellation 
education also applies to vocational programs, which we're also trying to get relief for. And that too, the world we live in today absolutely does invest a significant advantage on people who do go to college. And the, the status quo that we are maintaining is a world where if you have rich parents, you get to avail yourself of that advantage. If you have poor parents, you don't get to avail yourself of that advantage. So why is it that when we're picking winners and losers, uh, it seems as though people who, let's say, applied for PPP funds, like That's two right. of the Democrats who voted for overturning this moratorium and got 60 plus thousand dollars of their personal company loans um, forgiven are the winners and the student debtors who are too poor to afford to go to college in the first place without incurring significant debt are the losers. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We're, we're changing the bar on folks, right? We're shifting the bar. We're saying that if you don't get an education and you are, you know, struggling financially, now, well, that's your fault for not getting an education. But if you do try to get an education and you don't succeed, and there's lots of reasons why people don't, um, that, you know, we are going to put the full force of the government on you um, and tell you, you know, it is more important for you to pay back your student loans than it is for you to be able to feed your families. And I think, you know, in terms of shifting the bar, the other thing that people need to be aware of that's happening this week is there's another vote happening almost simultaneously with the uh, debt ceiling deal, the Congressional Review Act, which would actually... Um, not just, you know, roll back the president's uh, debt relief plan, which he announced in, in August, but also this, the seventh payment pause, which was announced simultaneously. And what that would do is it would actually add back, you know, we've had this payment pause for a number of years, um, but this Congressional Review Act would add back the unpaid interest starting from September. So public service workers who have been counting on time towards public service loan forgiveness that they've been accruing during the payment pause since September, that would be rolled back. People who've gotten their loans canceled because they've been engaged in public service could have that loan cancellation revoked as well. So that's those are the stakes that are on the table this week. And there's a lot happening. And borrowers, I think, need to be aware that they're being used as political pawns in this moment in a very hot political debate. But a lot of it is because folks were just trying to get ahead and provide for their families and, and for public service to provide for their communities as well. So for just so I understand, you're saying that they will have to pay interest, they might have to pay interest dating back to last September? Yeah, so if this Congressional Review Act resolution is successful, it's going to roll back the payment pause um, to September of 2022. And remembering that the payment pause froze interest, um, it made it so that people didn't have to make payments, and it counted those payments as qualifying payments towards public service loan forgiveness. And so what would happen is if we roll all that back, it means all of that interest is going to be due for borrowers. It means that folks are going to, uh, you know, we're going to have to do something with the fact that they haven't made payments in almost nine months. And so there's a big question about would we accidentally trip everybody into default immediately? Mm. Um, but yeah, and that, you know, if you were counting on that time to get you towards forgiveness because you've been working in public service, that that could be taken away. So just so people who might not be aware of what those interest payments can be like, that could be as high as, what, a $10,000 bill or even more, depending on how many loans you've taken out. Let's say you're a public interest, a, a, a housing lawyer, a public defender, and have the full 
$160,000-plus of a loan. I know it's more than that from your law school debt. What you're saying is you're taking this low-paying job to go back into your community and offer these public services, but now you might be hit with an unexpected you know, 8% interest on that loan amount, which for me, my first year out of college was, I think I paid like eight, or out of law school, something like $18,000 in interest or something that first yeah. year. That could happen to people. If, if this resolution is successful, that that is what we project would happen. Incredible stuff. Uh, thank you, Persis. Thank you, Joe Biden. More rising coming after this. <music> Joe Biden, sexual assault accuser Tara Reid, said early this week that she had moved to Russia and was seeking citizenship there. This is according to Sputnik, a Russian government-run news site. Let's take a look. Uh, the attacks will continue. I only know that when I got off the plane in Moscow for the first time in a very long time, I felt safe and I felt heard and I felt respected. And that has not happened in my own country. I did talk to U.S. Congressman Matt Gates. I have not concealed anything. I told him I was in Moscow, Russia, and I told him why. And he said something very stunning. I am considered a whistleblower, as you know, in the United States. One of the cases I will be testifying is about how the DOJ and the FBI has weaponized by the Biden administration against its own citizens. So he said, Tara, you know, I'm worried about your physical safety. Now, the immediate reaction to this, I think, has been somewhat outsized to what is actually happening here. Tara Reid saying that she feels less safe in the United States, where, of course, the political implications of her raising her claim at the time that she did meant that she was very much treated differently, I would say, by the mainstream media, who did not seem to have any interest in weighing the credibility of her concerns the way they had with, for example, Christine Blasey Ford, who had accused Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault when they were students together. Um, there, of course, nobody knows what happened in any of these instances except for the people there. But what we do know definitively is that the media treatment and interest in actually investigating and following up on some corroborated evidence that Tara Reid had yeah, it was, was nil. grossly different. And uh, frankly, making this even more disgusting, I'm seeing a lot of, uh, I, I've gotten personal messages that are off the record, so I won't share the people behind them, but people in mainstream media saying, oh, look at you, yeah, how do you feel now? You took this more seriously than I did, and, but she's a Russian student, she's moving to Russia, so you must feel pretty stupid for even writing about this and covering, and, and to be clear, I only said we should apply a standard evenly across the board. Right. I personally, I, I did not vote for Joe Biden because I'm not a Democrat and I don't support his policies. Same. And if I had been <laughs> inclined to vote for him, I frankly don't think a many decades old accusation, barring extremely compelling evidence that is very likely to have happened, would have changed my mind. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I would have, and I felt the same way about the Kavanaugh confirmation mm -hmm. and a lot of Me Too uh, instances. It was uh, liberal activists who took the position that you should automatically believe accusers rather than just treat with them with respect and dignity, which is what I think you should do, and which put Democrats in, and Joe Biden himself, who agreed with that standard, in a totally unsustainable uh, situation, given that he had faced accusations not just from her, but from other people, hers being uh, the most serious. Look, 
that she has subsequently, even if, let's say you think the subsequent actions, this, you know, posture toward Russia is, uh, is, is, not, is not wise or is a little too, I, I don't know, did, countenance, counting of, of Russia's bad behavior, let's say sure. you think that. I don't think that that changes the underlying accusation whatsoever. And in fact, it could be that someone who made an accusation and then was not taken seriously was gaslit by a mainstream media that was eager to dig into every single Me Too instance of anyone on the planet except hers, yeah. maybe got a little paranoid and a little conspiratorial yeah. and went down some rabbit hole of some thinking the world is against her because of that behavior. Also, that would not be surprising it, at all. I don't know that we can even call it paranoia when the, the media was very yeah. much against her. Listen, listen to this from contemporary coverage of this news story in the New York Times. The New York Times writes, in interviews with the New York Times in April of 2020, no former Biden staff members could corroborate any details of Ms. Reid's allegation. No former <laughs> Biden staff members could corroborate. Let's recall, because we should talk about it here, because at the time, yeah. the media had no interest in talking about all of the corroborating evidence, which, frankly, I don't, again, I don't know what happened. No other wolves but, could corroborate but, what happened to the three little pigs. Right. But I, I don't know what available. happened. But I do know that there was more corroborating evidence in the Tara Reid case than there was in the Christine Blasey Ford yes. case. Starting with the fact that she contemporaneously told her brother and a close friend of the assault when it happened. She also told her mother, who has dece is deceased. However, her mother made a call to Larry King Live I remember. talking about the assault, which somebody, when, when Tara Reid raised that in an interview, I think, with Katie Halper, someone dug it up. And now we have the video of Tara Reid's mom talking about her corroborating well before, like this is in the 90s, corroborating Tara Reid's account. Okay, this was in, 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 um, the event probably, or maybe it was in the early aughts, but the event happened, no, sorry, it happened in 1993. Mm -hmm. the, the call to Larry King Live happened yeah. in 1993. Okay, more, moreover, Tara Reid says that she reported the assault to a member of uh, Biden's staff, Marianne Banker, the office manager in Biden's office at the time. Now, this is maybe what the New York Times is alluding to, that when contacted, Marianne Banker said, She's never heard of this. She never, she doesn't know that anything happened. But in an article in The Intercept, you know, Ryan Grimm, that Ryan Grimm wrote, he pointed out that, quote, for Baker's statement to be true, Reed would have had to have lied to her friend, brother, and mother about having complained to Biden's office. And there's no obvious reasons to that. Now, people will say the timing is bad. She's coming up with this in April of 2020. This is political. But that doesn't explain why at 1993 and before, she had made all of these statements contemporaneously or near contemporaneously to other people in her lives. And that's something that no one in the media really reckoned with or engaged with in any way. And I don't remember there being any pressure at all on Baker to look through, to do document requests, record requests, try to see if there's any actually evidence that can corroborate on, from on the office's side what Tara Reid had been saying. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the excuses people in the mainstream media came up with in private conversations with me when I would ask people, why aren't you covering this? Why aren't you digging into this? Why don't you have the interest in this that you had about Christine Blasey Ford or a hundred other things? The excuses they came up with were so just flatly absurd and ridiculous. It was clear that it was inconvenient for Joe Biden, and it was and, and it, it was a, a, a lack of willingness to cast aspersions on him at that point. Um, even though there was still another, there was still someone running for the Democratic nomination yep. at the time who did not have sexual misconduct accusations against them. And again, I am not asserting whatsoever that this should be the standard that you get accused of anything. That's it. It's over for you. I think we went way too over our skis in in due process, bad ways, and in like public 
you know, burn them at the stake kind of kind of views. But this was a standard the mainstream media wholly bought into for everyone else. And even if you don't, if you put believe women to the side, you should at very least believe in investigating yes. claims that come up. Yes. That that should be the standard that you credit you you treat all of these claims as potentially credible. You investigate them, and either mm -hmm. they are or they aren't. And in fact. We can't memory hole that there were a number of people who accused Joe Biden of sexual misconduct at the beginning of his campaign. His own vice, now vice yeah. president, Kamala Harris, said that she believed Biden's accusers. People like Alyssa Milano, who were key members of the uh, Me Too movement, flipped on a, a, a head of a pen when it came to the accusations about mm -hmm. Joe Biden, immediately ran cover him. People uh, for, right. for him, people like um, Stacey Abrams were quartered right. on TV and made to say that they basically immediately, without having any opportunity to know anything about what happened, said that they believed Joe Biden. And watching this as a third party at the time was Incredible. It was, it was incredible it was to Alyssa Milano's moment. former co-host, Rose McGowan, who who went ballistic about it. it was like, are you kidding me? Yep. This and, is. And in fact, Melissa Milano founded a podcast pro Joe and her, had Joe Biden on as her first guest on her Me Too Times Up podcast in the midst yeah. of all of these allegations in the spring of 2020. It was disgusting. And to the extent that people did not believe that the Me Too movement was in good faith, I think that you know many people, it was in good faith. The people had experienced sexual assault and were so happy to be able to have space to uh, voice their com concerns. But the people who were, many figures who were running the movement, who ended up running cover for Joe Biden, really undermined the interests, legitimate mm -hmm. interests, of women and men who have been assaulted over time. And it did a horrible disservice to to the things that they had experienced. Yeah. But I guess we're the idiots now that she's moved, now that Tara Reid has moved to Russia. Yeah. I guess I mean, we feel real bad about ourselves. And she's right. She is a whistleblower and she has been yes. threatened. And the, the media's response to her choice to move there, as maybe I think it's uh, uh, wise optically or overly credulous mm -hmm. of her safety in Russia and all of these other kinds of things, Absolutely. maybe she is being used as a pawn. But that's, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that her interests aren't also being served, even yeah. if she knows she's being used in some ways it, it by the Russian government. It just has nothing to do with the underlying accusation, right. which it, was never taken seriously it, by exactly. the mainstream media here. And you can exactly. see why someone would feel like, um, having gone through what she did, that it was not the situation here was yeah. not to her benefit. The, the way While to, still questioning that choice. The Go way, ahead. The way it. to discredit Tara Reid's claims is to investigate Tara Reid's yeah. claims in a fulsome way that has never been done to this date. Yeah. Instead, we're getting uh, she's uh, in the pocket of yeah. Big Putin, but that doesn't go to the, the material issue. Real undeserving victory lap being taken there yeah. by mainstream mouthpieces, in my opinion. Uh, we'll have more rising right after this. In a now viral TikTok, actor James Vanderbeek, who you might remember for Dawson's Creek, he was Dawson in the 1998 hit TV show. Man, I feel old, but I'm going to keep <laughs> reading. Well, he tore into the Democratic National Committee for refusing to hold a debate between Democratic nominees and President Joe Biden. Here's part of what he said. I cannot get over the fact that the Democratic National Committee is saying there will not be a debate to decide the nominee for president. Are you kidding me? Over an 80-year-old man who, if he lives, will be the oldest sitting president in the history of the country? 
And if he doesn't live, has a vice president whose approval rating is worse than his? This guy is obviously declining mental faculties. You're putting him up in front of a podium with flashcards telling him who to call on and what the questions are going to be. And you're telling us there's no debate? What about the will of the people? Well, shortly after Biden kicked off his reelection bid in April, the DNC did in fact announce it would not be holding a debate in the primaries, and it has thrown its entire weight behind the president. James Vanderbeek, un tapping unusual into something uh, you believe. Hero, and, uh, I believe, yeah. yeah, look, and he's a Democrat. We found out he is a Democrat. He's a Democrat. So this I found not... I found a post from 2016 where he went on Facebook and said, "I normally don't get political, but I gotta say, I know there's a lot of reasons people are gonna say Hillary is worse. I'm sure many of you are opposed to. I'm not thrilled about her either, but." You know, we got to vote against Trump is, yeah. is the idea. And he posted an article about some recent scandal that had happened about Donald Trump. So I, I, I'll, despite seeming to align himself with Democratic politics, historically, people are very—Democrats are very mad at this. The Daily Beast characterized this story as uh, why James Vanderbeek has become Fox News's hero, as Jesus though Christ. that invalidates the substance of what he said. Yeah, it's, it's absurd. Look, what, That's crazy. Over 70 percent of Americans think that Joe Biden shouldn't run. Right. And the Democratic Party is going to really have to reckon with the fact that it is literally setting up the same situation that they had in 2016, where you had two unfavorable candidates going head to head. And you're hoping that Democrats feel more peer pressure to come out and vote for Biden just because than Republicans feel genuine enthusiasm in coming out and voting for someone like Donald Trump. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's expressing something that it just viscerally people understand and feel, which is that, of course, there should be a debate. And it, this will not weaken, this will not hurt Joe Biden. This will strengthen him. Actually, this is a point that got made recently in, a, in a, what, what Mehdi Hassan had on Marianne Williamson and, and you know, grilled her, called her a spoiler candidate. Spoiler she said, candidate. I'm not even, I'm, I'm not spoiling anything. I'm running in the primaries. Yeah. So what do you say to those who point out that, yes, you are popular with younger voters and on TikTok, but you can't win a Democratic presidential primary. You're essentially a spoiler candidate. And so by primarying Biden, all you're doing is weakening him in the general and making it easier for a Republican to beat him in 2024 in what will be a very tight election. Well, there are two things about what you said. First of all, you said I'm a spoiler candidate. I'm not a spoiler candidate. I'm running in a primary. So you can't be a spoiler if you're running in the primary. The second thing you said was this narrative you can't win. Isn't that what people said about Donald Trump? I will win if people vote for me. So that harangue, I mean, look, the choice to frame so much of that interview as asking a candidate why she was justified to run. And that also that pivot where he says, well, are you even qualified to run as though one, Donald Trump didn't happen, and Marianne made that point. But also that somehow being a lawyer or having spent so much time in Congress causing some of the problems that we need a president mm -hmm. to unwind qualifies you for that very job, I think really flies in the face of what so many Americans have come to believe, which is that D.C. culture, the swamp, the captured nature of our political system is exactly the problem. And thank goodness, frankly, that we have social media and, frankly, celebrities with platforms who are able to say out loud what majorities of Americans are thinking, but very few pundits are willing to say. Right. Absolutely. This is, for a long time, the right has said um, that we need people who are not career politicians. And then fi finally, they got offered one, and he won, Donald Trump. Yeah. And I think many uh, people on the left as well intuitively understand that 
people who have been in Washington forever are not serving the people's interests. They're serving lobbyist interests. They're serving um, corporate influence interests. They're, they're serving the state itself. They're serving the interests of the federal bureaucracy, which sure. has grown well beyond the control of either party. Um, and, and again, we're not talking about like overturning the system here. We're talking about having a debate between Joe Biden and the two people running against him who are po who have a combined polling, what, in the in the 20s, that they're close to 20 at oh, this point? more than that. Um, RFK Jr. alone was polling at 19, 20 yeah. percent. Marianne Williamson, in some polls, yeah. was at 9 percent. And then in a different poll, they were both polling at 11 percent. So right. that's probably the this combined This will not 20%. hurt Joe Biden. And if it hurts Joe Biden, maybe I mean, that shows that he's not a good candidate. <laughs> that's, that's the double-sidedness of it. Joe Biden can't is, simultaneously so claim yeah. right, that these people are so small that he shouldn't have to debate them, but also that debating them would make him so vulnerable that he can't win. Which is it? Do they have enough energy to actually cause you to lose the primary? Or is it the case that maybe they will say things to you about your record, about your failure to follow through on your promises to the American mm -hmm. people that make you look bad? If that's the case, now is the time to cure those problems. But Hillary Clinton never took seriously the concerns and complaints that were made against her, no matter how substantive, no matter how broadly felt. She characterized over and over again her critics as sexist, as out to get her, as bad faith actors, and never felt any need to actually make the necessary pivot from primary to general election to bring more people into the fold. And as a consequence, she left. Someone needs to learn, she lost yeah. rather, sorry. Someone needs to learn from that lesson. But the, the audacity of calling people who point that out, like Fox News's favorite Democrat or, or whatever, who's that? That was the Daily Beast that, was that the did Daily that? Beast. Unsurprising. <laughs> totally unsurprising. But yeah, you can't offer, you can't be a Democrat and offer any criticism of the Democratic Party and its, and its choices and how it's, where it's moving primaries and debates and things in order to anoint Joe Biden again. If you have any issues with that, uh, you might as well be a Republican. That's the mainstream media line on all this. Yeah, whomst amongst us have not, have not been accused of being a secret Trump supporter just because we said things like, hey, I want a president who doesn't say he's going to veto Medicare for all if it passes the House and Senate. Or, hey, I want a president who's not going to try to memory hole his promise to cancel all student debt for HBCU grads, even though those are the same people who turned out and won Georgia for him back in 2020. Is James Vanderbeek saying, I don't want to wait <laughs> for the 2024 nominating season for Democrats to be over? Before I get a primary opportunity. <laughs> yes. Uh, we're having some fun on Rising oh, today. The singing. More Rising for you after this. Former President Donald Trump took to Truth Social yesterday with some not-so-kind words for his former White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany. Quote, Kaylee Milktoast McEnany just gave out the wrong poll numbers on Fox News. I'm 34 points up on DeSanctimonious, not 25 up. Well, 25 is great. It's not 34. She knew the number was corrected upwards by the group that did the poll. The rhinos and globalists can have her. Fox News should only use real stars. Listen to what Trump is referring to here. The DeSantis team would say, you know, we just had polling come out that shows we closed the gap by nine points since we announced in Iowa. Still, Trump's hugely ahead, but they say they're closing the gap. That's their argument. Hugely. Hugely. Um, look, if you look at the big polling lead. now, uh, it was Trump 34 in Iowa. It's now Trump 25. Still a big That's lead. double digits. 
Trump was not wrong, however. A new morning consult poll conducted last week did show Trump in the lead amongst GOP primary voters, earning 56 percent support, up, in fact, 34 points ahead of Ron DeSantis, who earned 22 uh, percent support. I think the poll was taken before the DeSantis announcement, mm. so maybe there'll be some movement there. Um, this, this also, this is not so. Kaylee McEnany was a major Trump press secretary. Um, she was a, an attack dog on Trump's behalf. She worked for this man. Mm -hmm. She was everywhere, all over social media. She was effective. Uh, she was very effective, very loyal. So this is again an example of while well, he's technically right here, Trump turning on his people. Um, like she, she's very loyal. He calls her, he called her milk toast. He didn't he, milk toast. It's uh, milk it's toast. I mean, with a Q -Q -E. that's just kind of endearing. But yeah. so I'm seeing a lot of people on Twitter, honestly, on the right, who who are very Trump, um, pro Trump, and you know at least are, are not, I think, decisively on the DeSantis side, saying this was a low blow. You know, she she defended you at all times. I'm I'm seeing that from uh, like a lot of people. Um, it's similar to what's happening with. Um, uh, Christina Peshaw, hmm. who is a, a Ron De, the, that top Ron DeSantis advisor, strategist, press secretary person, um, she has been. So, I mean, she's always been a DeSantis person, but obviously DeSantis and Trump were not at odds until recently. Um, she's being like accused of being a globalist neocon or something. I, I like. I don't know why they're saying her views are neocon. Maybe you can educate me if, <laughs> if you out there think that's um, the case. Uh, it's uh, it's very um, you know eating of your own. Yeah, I, look, I don't understand. It seemed like an oh, here's, honest. Oh, sorry. Here, Rick yeah. Rennell. Here's an example. Rick Rennell, uh, major Trump um, uh, appointee ambassador to uh, Germany, I believe. Mm. Um, big, you know, all Team MAGA sort of person. He said, with all due respect, uh, Kaylee has been. Oh no, sorry. Never mind. Here's an example going the right. No, he's saying he, he's uh, he's attacking Mark Thiessen for. Okay, so he's on the other side of this. So he's saying no, no, she's fair game now because she's on yeah, Team that's, DeSantis. That's interesting. So it's not all one way. Uh, right, uh, Rob Smith defending Kaylee, Mike Cernovich defending Kaylee McEnany, um, people of of that nature. So Fox, a lot of Fox people, Guy Benson, Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, she. So. It, this seems like one of those things that is an honest mistake. You heard in that clip that her point, her overall point, was emphasizing that Trump still had a huge lead mm -hmm. and that Ron DeSantis didn't seem to be a real threat. So the choice to go all in, not just saying, you know, Donald Trump has a way of being kind of passive aggressive and snide and having little quips like, you know, I, I could see him saying, oh, it's 25 is great, but it's not 35 and making all mm -hmm. of that sort of statement, but not going in on calling her a globalist shill and all, all, of, all of those sorts of things. So I think it does make you wonder if you are looking to ally with Donald Trump and to root for him, if he'll turn on someone as loyal as Kayleigh McEnany, he'll who won't he anyone. turn on? Literally, no, he would turn on his own children. There, there is no one, no one he won't turn on um, and then, and then it also looks like if he doesn't like these, if he thinks these people are bad, if he, he thinks she's, if he actually thinks she's milk with toast, <laughs> you picked her to be your press secretary. Like yeah. he'll, he'll trash these people, say the worst things about them. If that was true, if they're so bad, why did you pick them? It's clearly that they're not actually bad. You're just, you, you have a sense of loyalty that requires your people not to work, not just to work tirelessly for you, not just to do everything for you, but to literally like obstruct the, 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 the next person, uh, the next president coming into office on your behalf. Yeah, and honestly, this stuff doesn't it's seem to touch. It's an unattainable level of. Trump, I mean, how many other. I mean, yeah, nobody, nobody's going to care, but. Have we seen 
who have been dogged by reporting about how they're mean to staff, uh, Amy Klobuchar being accused uh, of being but the inspiration behind that scene staff. from Veep, where uh, the Veep character uh, asked her subordinate to dry shave her legs under the table that was apparently, allegedly, really was inspired care. by Amy Klobuchar. I didn't care about that There's either. the whole story about Amy Klobuchar uh, being upset that her, her subordinate didn't bring her a fork to eat her salad on the plane and eating it with her comb. Marion Williamson has been accused recently of being impolite to her staff, Mehdi Hassan, Asked her a bunch of questions like that during an interview that Katie he just Porter. had with her earlier this week. Katie Porter. I I should know that all the people I just noted were women, for whatever reason. Why do you hate women, Brianna? Well, there is an interesting question of whether or not these stories seem to have more traction when they are about a, a woman acute, uh, mistreating their staff versus a man. But the point here, the main point I want to make, is that it is interesting that other people get flack for this sort of thing. And Donald Trump, well, you're right. There are some people who are saying... Why go after one of your own? He's been like this for a really long time, and it doesn't seem like it's dissuaded people from wanting to make nice with him and to work for him and to ride his coattails. She's she's fiery. Like no coattails means like like pathetic and weak. Yeah. Like she she's a she was an attack dog for him. She was. She was a very effective press secretary. People wanted to be very dismissive mm -hmm. because obviously they substantively disagree with their politics of the people that work for Donald Trump. But Kaylee McEnany was nobody's fool. And I thought that she did a, a really good job in the position. And this is also an interesting story given that um, uh, we're about to get uh, a New Jersey um, the New Jersey entrance into the uh, the race, uh, the New Jersey governor entering into the race, who has been on so many sides of this Trump uh, allegiance. Christie. Christie. Christie, yes. Yeah, and people are saying, well, he's positioning himself to come in as an attack dog who's going to be explicitly critical of Trump in a way that other people haven't been in the past, in a way that he, at times, has not been in the past. But, of course, uh, in his most recent arc is appearing a oh, lot yeah, on liberal media yeah. and being kind of the, the reasonable conservative at the table. Mark my words. Chris Christie. Christie's really going to fundamentally alter <laughs> the dynamics of this race. So yeah. that's the thing. Is Chris yeah. Christie finally going to be tired? Is, is, is the real Chris Christie and his real feelings about Donald Trump going to come out? Is, is he going to, or is he going to keep running cover for him in the way that so many people, including the entire Fox Christie, News enterprise, felt like they needed to run cover for him? I mean, Chris Christie might, is, I, I think, is going to get in the race. There is, <laughs> he's a total non-entity among, among conservatives, among primary voters. This is somewhat, I, I, like, he, again, he has currency maybe with, he mostly does the mainstream media circuit. Um, yeah. He doesn't I have any more credibility. He's been on every side of the Trump issue. He's been very condemning of Trump, very anti-Trump, need to move on from Trump. But if he's a nominee, yeah, I'll vote for him. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Like, he's wishy-washy, I think, on the fundamental Trump question. Actually, I was seeing someone retweeted into my timeline, maybe it was a screenshot of an old um, Christie tweet from the pandemic that he'd just gotten out of the hospital with COVID and saying about how we need to mask harder and conservatives need to be more pro-masking, which maybe maybe you agree with that. Maybe you think that'd be good, a good idea. Uh, but I don't think it's good politics for the Republican primary. Um, well, I mean, will he peel off some votes from DeSantis? But, maybe. But sure. The, 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 the headline of that COVID story was that Trump gave Chris Christie COVID. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. 
Trump gave that him. That was at the Rose Garden? Is that when he I, got I, it? I think was that. Was he at the Rose Garden thing? I think that was. Um, uh, that was the Amy Coney Barrett. Trump tested positive situation. on September 26, 2020, six days before it was publicly announced that Christie tested positive on October 3rd. Uh, yes, it was a Rose Garden, Amy Coney Barrett mass uh, infection event that happened that year. And so people were saying that even though he was literally felled and hospitalized, I mean, he's a high-risk individual, hospitalized because of Donald Trump. What are Trump, you saying? <laughs> he was, he yeah. was literally yeah, hospitalized yeah. and was still at that time refused to really condemn Trump in the lead-up to that election. So wh why are we talking about this? Because as much as he's beaten people down, as much as Donald Trump has read people for filth, they tend to fall in line at the end of the day. Kaylee McEnany, I think, has taken this, um, you know, gracefully and not lashed out in any way and just kind of laughed about it. Chris Christie is gearing up to maybe finally take a stand for himself. But I think, it, you know, it is a, a fascinating phenomenon that Donald Trump seems to be getting away with treating even his very close friends and allies very poorly, even sending him to the hospital. Just wait until Chris Christie <laughs> enters the race. Wow, that's going to really shake things up. Uh, tomorrow on Rising, Senator Rand Paul will be joining us to discuss his reaction to the House's key debt ceiling vote. Uh, set for 8 p.m. tonight. You will not want to miss that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while or you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.